have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15, as we continue to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Jay Packer, in his book, Knowing God, speaking of the love of God, speaking of the love of God, writes this. God was happy without man before man was made. He would have continued happy had he simply destroyed man after he had sinned. But as it is, he has set his love upon particular sinners. And this means that by his own free voluntary choice, he will not know perfect and unmixed happiness until he has brought every one of them to heaven. He has, in effect, resolved that henceforth, for all eternity, his happiness shall be contingent upon ours. Thus God saves, not only for his glory, but also for his gladness. This goes far to explain why it is that there is joy, God's own joy, in the presence of angels when a sinner repents. Luke 15:10 and why there will be exceeding joy when God sets us faultless at the last day in his own presence Jude 24 the thought passes understanding and almost beggars belief but there is no doubt that according to scripture such is the love of God as we begin to look at the parable of the prodigal son we are just kind of going through it at a slow place because it is so incredible. In the beginning of chapter 15, there were some scribes and Pharisees who were grumbling that Jesus was receiving these repentant sinners. So Jesus, in order to correct their faulty, selfish thinking, Volleys at them three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. All three parables describe something of a value that is lost, sought after, retrieved, and then rejoiced over when found. All three picture the joy of God, the saints in heaven, and the angels of heaven who rejoice when even one sinner repents. Jesus describes the prodigal in this parable in such a way as to make him as repulsive as possible to the scribes and the Pharisees. He crafts the parable to make the prodigal so hideous that they're just wincing in disgust. The prodigal fell in to the sins of being impatiently greedy, of not caring about others, of presuming upon God's grace and mercy, of hiding from accountability, of thinking that sinning would make him happy, and for living only for the day with no concern for the morrow. His sin led him suffering to suffering, but God used this suffering to humble him. Sin impoverished him, brought him low, defiled him, left him wanting, left him friendless. And blinded him to his own true condition. And then we begin to look at God's grace of of repentance in this man's life. We learned that repentance is a gift of God because it starts 
in the eternal purposes of God, where God chooses some sinners, unworthy sinners, before the foundation of the world. Because he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Because the Father orchestrates events to bring the gospel and the sinner into contact with each other. Because God uses the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds to the truth so that we can understand the gospel and believe. Because God supplies us with saving faith. Because God grants us repentance. All of these things are the work of God to the sinner before the sinner even knows what's going on. And this is why repentance is a gift of God. In addition to that, we saw that God, um, when he grants repentance to a sinner, that sinner then begins to seek the blessing of God like never before. The sinner is broken over the treachery of their sin against God like never before. They turn from their sin to follow Christ like never before. They are moved to confess their sins like never before. And they are humbled like never before. And this is where we left off. We left off in the text where we learn that the prodigal came to his senses. That is the hinge in which the whole parable turns. He came to his senses, which means he repented of his sin. So look with me in your Bibles at Luke 15 and follow along. I'm going to read verses 11 through 22. And he said, a man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the sh- my share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together I gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, just stop there. That's as far as we're going to get. As you look here at this section, verses 20 through 24, as I studied this, guess how many kindnesses of God towards repentant sinners I found? Six. Yeah, isn't that interesting? We're only going to look at the first three this morning. The first kindness that God shows is that God 
seeks sinners. We see in verse 20 that he got up and came to his senses. We already saw from verse 17, uh, or he came up to his father because he came to his senses. We saw that in verse 17. He is been brought to a place where he sees himself rightly. He he is living in the land of sin. He has totally defiled himself. He's in a famine. He's really headed for hell. And there he is in the country of sin, having insulted his father, shamed his family, rejected the law of Moses, despised his inheritance, squandered the rest of his inheritance on prostitutes and loose living. And you can just see him there all poor and dirty and ragged and smelling like pigs. No one's giving anything to him. And he comes to his senses by God's grace and turns towards home. And maybe for days or weeks, maybe even months, we don't know. We don't know what distant country he was in. He's walking home. And he doesn't have a a horse or a camel or can't ride in a cart. He's walking because he doesn't have a penny to his name. He's kind of like a stray dog. He's just hungry. His stomach's growling day and night. He's scavenging for food. Maybe he just eats grass to fill the void. Or if he gets lucky, he can eat a couple grasshoppers. Maybe a few kind travelers take pity on him and give him some meager rations. But he's no longer the proud, cocky, arrogant, self-serving, self-focused young man he was when he left. He's changed. He's humbled. He's thankful for every little kindness extended to him. He's different than he ever was before. Why? Because God's grace has entered his life. God's grace has changed him. He's different now. And he's headed towards home. And as he enters into the land of Israel, I'm sure he saw things and smelled things that reminded him of growing up and all the good that he had while he was living at home. And I'm sure he just felt just shame upon shame well up within him at how he could be so foolish to leave his country, to leave his father, to leave so much goodness to really destroy himself. And he climbs the crest of a hill And he knows he's now in his father's land. The land that would have been his if he hadn't forfeited it. And he's almost home when something so wonderful and so amazing happens. Look at the middle of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him. Now, what does this tell us? I thought about this. The prodigal's been living in some distant country, who knows where. He's lost everything. 
He's been feeding pigs. It's not like he sent an announcement home. I'm coming home at such and such a day at such and such a time. No one knows where he is. No one knows he's coming home. How could it be that the father just happens to be outside, just happens to be looking at them in the right direction at just the right time? I mean, there are 360 degrees to the compass. And even if you were out there day after day looking, just think of how difficult it would be to see somebody a long way off. Before they're even recognizable, how is it that the father sees him and knows his son so far away? On the right day, at the right time, in the right direction. Remember, the father represents God. God knows everything. God knows when a sinner is going to repent and come to his senses and turn to home because he is the one who extends saving grace so that he repents and turns home. The father is looking in the right direction because he knows his son is coming home that day at that time in that direction. The scriptures say there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows where he's been. He knows where you are too. He sees you at work. He sees you at home. He sees you when the lights are on and when the lights are off. You're never out of his sight. He sees all of us. Even when we're living in the land of sin, even when we're using all the goodness that he has given to us, his grace, his mercy, the life, his gifts, our wealth, whatever, all those things he's given to us, he sees us when we're living in sin, when we're rebelling against him, when we're not living for his glory, he sees it all. And yet, even though he knows all these things about it, the moment We turn from our sin to Christ. He's looking in our direction. There he is on the horizon. You know, the prodigal's coming up and he's so far away. You can only see just the top of his head and the father knows it's him. He walks a little further and pretty soon his shoulders appear and then the rest of his body. And then you can see all of his legs. He's still so far away that no mortal eye could see him, but the father does. And the father knows who he is. It's his son who's coming home. John chapter 6 verses 44 and verse 65 tell us that no one comes to Jesus unless the father draws them and grants them repentance. So the father is drawing the son. And one who doesn't understand this might conclude that the prodigal kind of came to his senses on his own and now is turning home. And now the, the father just happened to be out there, just happened to be out there at the right day, looking in the right direction and just happened to see him, even though he couldn't. No. And a lot of people think this way about their salvation. They think, you know, yeah, you know, my situation, you know, I knew I was living in sin. I could see that I was living in sin. My heart began to convict me. I began to be 
really concerned about the direction of my life. I thought, you know, I need to seek out the truth here. And so I started looking into different truths, different religions, maybe Christianity. I came to believe the Bible was true. I understood the gospel. Once I understood that God exists, the Bible's true and the gospel, then I believed in Jesus and was saved. And then God received me. But hear me now. That has never happened in the history of the world. No one has ever sought God on their own, ever. They won't do it. They won't do it. No one independent of the grace of God has ever sought out the Lord. You remember that text right before the Christmas text in Isaiah 9, 6, right before that, it talks about the Gentiles who live in the land of darkness will see a great light. John, in his gospel, in the first chapter, alludes to that. And he says this in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He goes on to say in verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. That is how men respond to Jesus apart from the grace of God. They don't receive him. John goes on to say in John chapter 3, this is right after Jesus' description, discussion with Nicodemus, and he describes now how men unaided by the grace of God respond to the light. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deed should be exposed. Men love darkness. Men love sin. Men don't want to come to Jesus. They will not on their own. And you say, well, why is that? Because Jesus is holy. Jesus is just. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And in their mind, though convoluted, though twisted by sin, they think, well, if I go to Jesus, he'll judge me. If I go to Jesus, he'll cast me into hell. If I do that, he'll control my life. I don't want anybody controlling me. But they don't even realize they're already a slave to sin and Satan. They're already held captive by Satan to do his will. They're already blinded by sin. The wrath of God already abides on them. Hell is waiting for them. They will perish unless they repent. They are like people walking in darkness who run away from their own good. They think in their minds, and it's just how it is, that if I run to Christ, it won't be good. But if I'm the master of my own soul, which they aren't because Satan's using them, if I'm the master of my own soul, things will be great. No, Satan is holding you in his arms because he's going to take you down with him to hell. You know, there are people who seek Jesus, but they seek him for the wrong reasons. There's the person who says, well, you know, my marriage is bad. I'm going to come to church and see if God will fix my marriage. Or my children are out of control, so I'm going to go to church and see if they'll fix my children. 
or my business isn't doing good and I'm going to go to church and maybe God will bless my business or I have some disease and some sickness. And if I go to church, God will maybe make me clean because I go and sing some songs and give some money and said, listen to the sermon. Listen, that's not coming to Christ. That's just robbing more of God's grace to use for yourself. Paul, in the beginning chapters of Romans, goes to great lengths to explain our dire circumstances before the grace of God invades our life. He says, though God reveals himself to all men in their conscience, through creation, by putting his law in their heart, men take that truth and they suppress it in unrighteousness. They exchange the glory of God and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And then Paul sums up after this long section of explaining the desperate condition of mankind. And he says, this is how men are. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Men left on their own never, never seek Jesus. It is only when God, by his grace, invades their life that they come to their senses and they realize, I'm in trouble. I need to turn from my sin. I need to run to Christ. I know you may be thinking, well, wait a second, Pastor Jack. I I mean, right there in the text, the prodigal, he, he came home. I mean, he came to his senses and I, all I know in my life is I... I got a clue and I sought God and then he found me. No, no, no. You can't throw away all the scriptures which say men don't seek God. You say, well, aren't there some that say that men seek God too? I mean, can I like believe those ones and just not think of the other ones? No. You have to figure out how they're both true. And how they're both true is this. Men on their own don't seek God. But when God supplies the grace, then they seek him in response. God is the one who seeks us. Unaided by saving grace, we never seek Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 19? We haven't got there. We'll be there in three or four years. John 19.10. The son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Sounds like. A parable of a lost sheep, a lost son, a lost coin, doesn't it? We're lost. He comes looking for us. The sheep does not find itself. The coin doesn't leap out of the dust and say, here I am. The sinner never finds themselves either. God seeks them out. You remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well? He said this in John 4, 23, but an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for such people. The father seeks to be his worshipers. God seeks out worshipers. 
The question is this, has the father sought you out? Have you come to your senses? Have you turned from your sin? And if God has done that, you need to rejoice. You need to praise God. You need to thank God for how he has saved you, how he has given you what you need to see the dire circumstances you were in, the direction you were heading, and has turned you around by his grace. But maybe you have not come to your senses yet. You need to do that. God commands you to do that. You need to realize that if you think you can call yourself a Christian, if you think you can come to church, if you think you can sing some songs, do some good deeds, and make it to heaven, you can't. No one gets to heaven by good deeds. I don't care how many good deeds you do, you'll never get to heaven by your good deeds. Like those people who have the God Bless America sticker on their car but they aren't blessing god they aren't obeying his word they just want more grace more grace yeah you can come to church you can try to get more grace from god but if you want saving grace you come in god's way and god's way alone you have to turn from your sin and believe in jesus that he died in the cross was buried and rose again for your justification and that in receiving him and believing and trusting him to save you then you get that exceeding abundant grace that we sang about earlier. If you're living out there and you're thinking right now, I know I don't know Christ. And you know why. I don't know why, but God does and you do. You know your sins are right now, right there in the screen of your mind. And you see them, you know what they are. And you don't want to turn from them, whatever they be. I mean, you want to be religious, and there's a part of you that doesn't want to go to hell, but there's another part of you that says, you know, I just don't want to submit to Christ. I don't want Christ reigning over me, over my family, over my hobby, over my business, over my whatever. If that's you, you need to see some bad, dark clouds in the horizon, and they're coming your way. And they're coming your way from the east, so you better flee to the west. And if you don't, you will perish. And no amount of good intentions, no amount of good works, no amount of church attendance, Bible reading, or giving will save you. You have to run to Jesus. You have to run to Jesus. He is the only one. Look there on the horizon, the prodigal is coming home. Is what God will say the moment you turn to Christ. The moment you turn to Christ, God will be looking in your direction to save you and receive you. The moment. But while you live with your back towards Christ, all you're going to see is judgment, doom, hell, wrath. The moment you turn from your sins, grace, mercy, love, and compassion. And the Father will receive anyone who turns to Him in faith. You say, well, how do we know this? Well, that brings us to our second point, because God is compassionate towards repentant sinners. Look at the end of verse 20. The Father sees the prodigal on the horizon and felt compassion on him. You say, are you sure? 
I mean, isn't this the son that acted so shamefully? Isn't this the son that wished his father was dead? Isn't this the son that took his inheritance early, despising, rejecting, forfeiting his land inheritance so he could have the cash now? Isn't this the son who rejected the law of Moses, who hid from accountability, who went into a distant country, who squandered everything he had on immoral living? Isn't it that same son? Yes, one and the same. Well, then how is it that the father feels compassion on him? Do you remember what the Lord declared to Moses when he put him in the cleft of the rock? Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And you remember what God said? You can't see my glory. It would kill you. But I'll stick you into the cleft of the rock. I'll pass before you with my hand over you. And when I go by, I'll let you see the afterglow. And do you remember what the afterglow was? It was this. It was God saying, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. That was God's self-description and glory that he forgives sinners. The word compassion here, when it says, and he felt compassion for him, is a Greek word that describes gut emotions. You know, kind of heaving, heavy gut emotions. You know, I know that some of you have children that have gone astray to incredible degrees. Some of you are those children who have gone astray to incredible degrees. Children who have sinned against their parents, lied to their parents, stolen from their parents, rejected their parents time and time again. The parents keep reaching out, keep praying for, and pretty soon after being abused and abused and abused, they finally say, listen, it's over. Grace ends. No more forgiveness, no more money, no more kindness. You're on your own. God never does that. Ever. When a sinner has turned from sin to Christ, he instantly gets the smile of God. It's part of God's nature. He always Forgives those who repent. He forgived all, forgave all of Nineveh when they repented. That whole pagan town when they repented. And look at verse 20. We are told that the father ran towards the prodigal. Think about this. Think about this. God running towards the sinner. In that culture, older men didn't run. I mean, they don't run in our culture either. (laughs) But especially in that culture, you didn't run because it was undignified behavior. 
You had a long tunic on, which made it very difficult to run. And in order to run, you'd have to hike up your tunic and expose your bare legs. And that was just not something you did. But here the son is a long ways off. He's just entered into the father's land. And the father's been waiting. And he sees him on the horizon. And then gut-wrenching compassion wells up within him. And he hikes up his tunic. And he begins to run towards the prodigal. And the prodigal is probably looking at the dust of the road. He's probably trying to think, oh, is he even going to receive me? Is he even going to accept me? Is he even going to, you know, whatever? I mean, I deserve to be stoned to death according to the law of Moses. I've been such a fool. James Stewart in his book, The Life and Teaching of Jesus Christ, comments, quote, Daringly, Jesus pictured God not waiting for his shamed child to slink home, nor standing on his dignity when he came, but running out to gather him, shamed and ragged and muddy as he was, to his welcoming arms, end quote. And this is the picture of God. The moment you turn from your sin, God will run towards you. Compassion wells up within him. He sprints towards the sinner. And the prodigal looks up and what does he see? But his father running towards him with tears streaming down his face with his arms open wide. And look at verse 20. It says, and he embraced him. Literally, the text says he fell on his neck. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? When a sinner repents, the father runs. He runs towards them. And here the prodigal just shamed, not knowing. He hears these steps. He sees his dad. He sees him crying. And his dad just collapses on his neck, weeping. And though he's clothed in rags, and he's still dirty, and he's still smelling like pigs, the father embraces him. And not only that, verse 20 goes on to say, and kisses him. The Greek indicates that he kisses him repeatedly. Stephen Charnock and his existence and attributes of God says, quote, God enters into peculiar communion with poor earthly worms. He plants his word, invites us by his benefits, admits us into his presence, is more desirous to bestow his smiles than we to receive them, and acts in such a manner as if he were willing to resign his scepter into the hands of any that were possessed with more love and kindness to us than he himself, end quote. And so the father now is clinging to the prodigal, weeping, kissing him. I mean, you could imagine how the prodigal felt at this moment. How shamed he must have felt and probably just stood there. I mean, what do you do? You know what you've done. You know how foolishly you've behaved. And now your father is extending all of this kindness towards you that you don't deserve. Well, that's what happens when you turn to Christ. That's what grace is. God extends all this kindness to you that you don't deserve. The moment you turn from your sins, God runs to you, embraces you, kisses you with grace. 
His emotions are welling up within him to do you good. Solomon, when he died, his kingdom divided into two kingdoms. And ten of the tribes formed the kingdom of Israel to the north, also referred to as Ephraim in the Old Testament. Ephraim, under the leadership of Jeroboam, instantaneously, as soon as the kingdom was split, made a pagan worship system. And for 19 kings and nine different dynasties, the kingdom of Israel never had a single godly king. They never turned from their sin. A couple hundred years. They never did it. They never did it. God then sent prophet after prophet after prophet to exhort them, rebuke them, warn them to turn from their sins so that he could show compassion and love towards them. They wouldn't do it. So finally he sent the Assyrians. In the words of Jeremiah, he brought them into the land and plowed under Israel like a field. People were slaughtered and killed and taken captive and dispersed to many lands. The cities were burnt. The crops were chopped down. The land was left desolate. Years later, the prophet Jeremiah writes these words to Ephraim, who has sinned and sinned and sinned and is still in captivity dispersed abroad. See if they sound Familiar to you. Jeremiah 31, 18 through 20. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote my thigh. I was ashamed and all and humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. And then God says. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed. As often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Amazing, isn't it? To sin against the Lord for that long? And after all those years and years, God says, you turn to me, my heart still yearns for you. You can look at Judah. Judah had a few good kings. And what happened in Judah? Who was the most wicked king that Judah ever had? Manasseh. The wicked, wretched, idol-worshipping son of good king Hezekiah. And Manasseh does so many wicked deeds, it'd take us a whole hour just to describe them all, just defiles the temple, pillages it, puts idols in the temple. But this is what we read about Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 through 13. When Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father's. And when he prayed to him, 
God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. We're going to see him in heaven. Manasseh. Matthew Henry comments, quote, the prodigal came home between hope and fear, fear of being rejected and hope of being received. But his father was not only better to him than his fears, but better to him than his hopes, not only received him, but received him with respect. God is gracious towards sinners who repent when they turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith. He gladly receives them. He wants to receive them. He yearns to receive them. He loves sinners. Now, God so loved the world of what? Sinners. I mean, that's all there are. That he gave his only begotten son. Paul says in Romans 5 verses 6 through 11, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For what will hardly die for a righteous man? Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God unlike men, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were sinner, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Did you see that? God, while you were an enemy, while you were a sinner, while you were hostile towards him, then he sent Christ to die for you. He didn't send Christ to die for you because he knew you'd clean up your act. If you turn to Christ, the Father will run to you because his grace is greater than all your sins. The sacrifice of Christ is greater than all your sins. And though you are an Ephraim and though you are a Manasseh and though you are a prodigal all combined into one, the moment you turn, you get the riches of God's grace. You say, well, If you do this, then what? What does that mean? Well, that brings us to our third point. God, out of kindness, forgives repentant sinners. The father runs to the prodigal. He embraces him. He's kissing him repeatedly. He's clinging to his neck. And then what happens? I'm sure he's overwhelmed. I'm sure he's speechless. What does he say? He thinks, I got to say my speech. The speech that I formulated living in the land of sin when I came to my senses. That speech that I've been rehearsing in my mind over and over again as I walked down this dusty road. And so he says, look at verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, and just stop there. He couldn't get the other part out. He couldn't get the other part part out he couldn't say make me one of your hired men the father cuts him off in mid-sentence he begins to give orders for other slaves to serve his son and do you see what has just happened here 
Why doesn't the father want to hear this confession anymore? All he could get out is I've sinned against you. And that's it. Don't want to hear anymore. Stop. Calls out to his servants. Why? Because he's forgiven. And when you're forgiven by God, you're forgiven all the way. And he doesn't want to hear it anymore. You go to God saying, oh, Lord, please forgive my sins. If you're a Christian, you're forgiven. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, which is what the prodigal did. And let him return to the Lord, which is what he did. And he will have compassion on him, which he did. And to our God, for he will what? Abundantly pardon. Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is to act as if the offense had never occurred. The father doesn't want to hear about it anymore. He's forgiven him. And there he is, clothed with the grace of Christ. And God, the father, sees him as perfectly righteous in Christ. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, as he defines love? He says... Love does not take into account what? A wrong suffered. Well, does Jesus love us? What was Jesus's definition of the most extreme expression of love? No greater love has any man than this, than that he what? Lay down his life for another. Who laid down his life for us? Jesus. Is he willing to forgive us? Of course he will forgive us. At the moment we turn to him, he forgives us. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish. That is, would have forgiveness. J. Wilbur Chapman in his hymn, Our Great God, captures it well. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. He loves our soul, so he forgives us. He has to forgive us. As soon as we turn to him, he is compelled to forgive us. Why? Because this is the rule he's set up. Anybody who repents and turns to me in faith, I forgive them. He can't deny himself. He has to fulfill his promise. You turn to Christ, you get forgiveness. And not just a little bit either. All the way. I've, I talk to Christians who don't really understand this, it seems. I mean, they say they do. Now, if I ask them a little quest, question, I give them a little theological quiz and say something like, you know, um, are Christians forgiven? And then usually out of their mouth pops this, oh, yes, we are forgiven by all our sins, past, present, and future. Well, good. So what's the problem here? Well, uh, you just don't know. I just feel so guilty. I just, I, I, you know, the, the Bible says that, you know, I'm going to give an account for every careless deed and word. And you don't know my tongue. And I have bad thoughts. And, and their theology is good. But they're not living it out. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which in the Greek means no. There's no condemnation. You will never stand before God groveling over your sins. They're dealt with. They're perfectly dealt with in Christ. He has washed them away. You're white as snow. 
You're clean. He never sees your sins again. They're done in the blood of Christ. You're perfect. You're clothed with Christ's righteousness. No more condemnation. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And how rich is God's grace? Infinitely rich. God has infinite grace. And so you have forgiveness according to God's infinite grace, which means as much as you need. This is why in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul describes believers in this way, when you were dead in your transgressions, that's us before grace enters, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. Notice, God made you alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Let's say that you're a young married couple. You're scrimping and saving because you want to have a home someday. You finally get this nest egg together, just barely big enough to put a down payment on the house. And the market is kind of high. You get kind of anxious and you think, you know what, let's just do it. So you buy this house. And right after you buy it and you get settled in and you're using every penny you can to make the payments, then all of a sudden the economy goes south. Pretty soon house prices plummet and now you owe more on your house than it's even worth. A lot of people are filing for bankruptcy, but you're a Christian. You you got to pay your debts. And so you keep making these huge payments on a house that isn't even worth as much as you paid for it. And then you lose your job. And you can't pay your mortgage. Unemployment has skyrocketed. You can't pay your mortgage. I mean, you want to honor the Lord. You want to maintain your testimony. You're humiliated. And then you realize you're just going to have to go down to the bank and talk to somebody and just tell them what's going on because you want to honor the Lord, but you just can't. Maybe they'll give you more time. So you sit down in front of some guy in a suit, the gold pen, find a big red mahogany desk. And he pulls out your paperwork and starts thumbing through them. And he's kind of got this smile on his face. And you're thinking to yourself, this is no joking matter. This is my house. I got all my savings put in there. What are you smiling about? And then he opens a drawer. He pulls out a little box and he opens that box. And inside there is a stamp and he rolls it in some red ink. And you realize, you know what he's going to do? He's going to throw down on there foreclosed. He's going to take my house from me. And you know that. You signed papers saying he could do that. You know that that's what's right. And you're going to lose all of your savings and all that you have when he thrusts that down. And so you get you just wait a minute, wait a minute. And he just puts his hand up and he. And when he pulls it out, what's there paid in full. And he says, the house is yours. Here's your deed. Have a good day. 
That's what Jesus does when we turn to him in faith. All those sins that we have committed against him. Have created a mortgage that we could never repay. Mounded up. So huge. So monstrous. We could never pay it. And the moment we turn to Christ in faith. He cancels out. The certificate of debt. Consisting of decrees against us. He takes it away. And he nails it to the cross. This is what God does. When we turn to him in faith. And we don't deserve it. Spurgeon wrote. Should saddled vengeance seize my breath. I must pronounce thee just in death. And if my soul were sent to hell. Thy righteous law approves it well. But then grace enters. And grace says. Though you deserve to go to hell. Though you deserve to be foreclosed on by God. If you turn from your wicked way. And your unrighteous thought. My father will run to you. His grace, his mercy will embrace you. He will receive you happily, joyfully. He yearns for you. And he will cancel out the certificate of debt, all of it, in one fell swoop. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood was shed for me. God seeks, God is compassionate. And God forgives repentant sinners to begin with. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. I'm so sorry. We're going to have to come back to this next week and learn more. About the love of God. Let's pray. Father we thank you so much for your kindness to us. Lord if there is anyone here who has not run to Christ. The rock. The fortress. The shelter. And they are still living in the land of sin. And yet trying to extract some grace. While they walk the fence. Help them to realize they're not on the fence. They're just running away from you. For those who might think that. Living for themselves, living for their sin, not living for you as Lord and glorifying you with their life is some sort of benefit. May they see it as the curse that it is. That they are held captive by Satan to do his will and he is dragging them to hell blindfolded. And if they don't wake up, if they don't come to their senses and turn to Christ, they will perish. Father, grant them repentance, open their eyes, give them the grace they need to see, rescue them as you have rescued many of us already. And Father, may we never forget that because of your grace and your kindness to us, you have sought us out. You have run to meet us. You have embraced us and kissed us and held us close. 
because you are a great God and a loving Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.